and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, But as you turn there, I want you to ponder this question. What hope do you have that God's kingdom will advance in our culture today? What hope do you have that God's kingdom will advance in our culture today? Now, first, to understand that question, we need to first understand that Jesus came not to just save sinners, but Jesus came to bring with him a kingdom of which the citizens which he saves would live and breathe and partake in. So Jesus was bringing a kingdom. If the only way you understand your Bible and the good news of Jesus is Jesus died for sinners, that's, that's good. That's good. Don't hear me say that's not good. That's, that's wonderfully and graciously true. Jesus did die to reconcile sinners to himself and to the Lord, but that's not all he came to do. Uh, and if, you, if this is the way that you read your scriptures, then, uh, then you're going to have a deficient and a truncated understanding of the totality of the work that Jesus came to do and the, the work that he came to bring about. Uh, so Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me, let me prove this to you real quick this morning. Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and this is what he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, did Jesus just mean he was here to save sinners? He means that, but he means more than that, because kingdom involves a king and a kingship and a rulership and authority and all these other things. And in fact, the kingdom of God appears 53 times in the New Testament gospels, almost always, listen, almost always on the lips of Jesus, right? And what we see in Matthew chapter 4 there, uh, the, the phrase kingdom of heaven appears 32 times in the gospel of Matthew. Throughout the accounts of Jesus's ministry, he is always talking about this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's quite important. And many of his parables explain something about what this kingdom is like, right? You remember the parable uh, where Jesus is describing the kingdom as a, a mustard seed or, or a treasure, or a merchant looking for pearls, or a king who is giving a banquet. All of these circle around this idea that Jesus is bringing a kingdom. Jesus defines his own purpose in light of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, he says this. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to all the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You see, the Lord Jesus teaches us that when we pray, We should pray like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, when you pray, when you approach the Father Almighty, when you do that, before you ask for things like bread, sustenance to get you through the day, or even before you ask for forgiveness, he says, ask for this. Ask that the Father would send his kingdom down to earth. Listen, that's where you are. That's where you live. And the question we have before us is, what hope do we have that this will actually happen? What hope do we have that this God's advancing kingdom will happen in our day? If we look at broader society, does it appear to you that the lordship of Jesus Christ is increasing or decreasing? Have we become despondent in our approach to seeing Christ as Lord, not just over salvation, 
but in every part of life, every part of the fabric of society, because it feels as if perhaps this world is looking less and less like his kingdom every day. And so we grow despondent, we grow complacent, we grow comfortable where we are. Perhaps we've even thought to ourselves, it doesn't look like Jesus did a very good job of bringing about that kingdom he was always talking about. Perhaps you've asked yourself the question, whose kingdom are we living in anyways? And what I want to press into you this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 10 is this, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will always win. Write that down. The kingdom of God will always win. And here's what I want you to write down, because everything in society, everything around you appears to be the opposite of that. Everything. The world is screaming at you that that's not true, it's make-believe, it's, it's myths in an old book. But mark it down, the kingdom of God will always win. The outline of the sermon this morning, the text is, uh, number one, a reminder of the faithfulness of God. A reminder of the faithfulness of God. Number two, a king chosen by God. A king chosen by God. And number three, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, remember where we are in this story of Saul's rise to kingship. And what we saw last week in chapter 9, uh, the first half of chapter 10, is that God is providentially, providentially working out all of these little stories, these interactions with people uh, and the lives of people that on the surface looked very insignificant. All of this leads up to Saul being anointed king by Samuel at the beginning of chapter 10. But up until this point, that news has all been kept on the down low. Even Saul didn't tell his uncle about the news of a kingdom that we see in verse 16 of here of chapter 10. But now is the time to give the people what they asked for back in chapter 10. Look at with me at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17 says this. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And we're not told how much time has passed since verse 16. Though I can't imagine that a great deal of time has passed. But it was at this time that Samuel begins to call the people back together. Remember the, the story at the end of chapter 8 when the people approach Samuel and ask them for a king. Uh, and the, he, he argues with the Lord. He talks with the Lord. And then uh, finally the Lord says, give them what they want. And so Samuel goes and he reads for them. And he tells them, like, this is what life under this kind of king will look like. It's the kind of king who will take, take, take. As a matter of fact, you will re-enslave yourself as if you were in Egypt. And the people say, well, we, we want a king anyways. And so Samuel goes back to the Lord. He repeats everything to the Lord. Uh, and the Lord says, give them what they want. And so Samuel goes back to the people and he says, okay, go home. And that's where the story ends. And then chapter 9 begins with the stories uh, of Samuel, of Kish. Uh, and, and then there from now we're growing into this idea that the people are about to get what they asked for. But let me remind you that this is not the first time we see Samuel gathering the people at Mizpah. I don't, don't miss this. A lot of us, we read these narratives and we miss these little clues of what the author is actually trying to convey to us. In fact, it was at Mizpah in chapter 7 where Samuel called the people together. He called them together at that time to lead them to turn away from false gods and to return to worshiping the one true God with a sincere heart. It says, uh, it says this, uh, that they gathered together. This is what Samuel says. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord only and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
Don't miss this. It's because it's important here. Samuel called them together at Mizpah the first time because their hearts needed to be led to repentance. And so it's not a coincidence that here he gathers them again at Mizpah, perhaps in the same town square. Perhaps Samuel stood back up on a stage that he had recently led the people to say, hey, uh, stop following other gods. And, and, and perhaps they've come back into that same place. Perhaps they're sitting next to the same people as they did the previous time, like you all do every week. And, and Samuel is here, uh, only this time he's again leading the people to renewed repentance. And so, so Samuel here gives them uh, a reminder of the faithfulness of God. And he does it in three, three moves. The first is he reminds, the Lord, he reminds them of what the Lord has done for Israel. Look at verse 18. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, us, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. You see, Samuel is a prophet of Yahweh at this point in his life. He's, and it's a prophet's job to tell the people, Thus says the Lord. And that, that's exactly what we see Samuel doing here. He's, he's, he's saying, this is what the Lord has instructed me to tell you. It's important because we're not seeing merely what Samuel wants to say, but rather we're seeing him deliver the message that God has given him for his people. And so he tells them of God's great acts for his chosen people Israel in the Exodus event. The God who had so redeemed Israel in the beginning had also proven faithful in delivering his chosen people time and time again through Joshua, through the kings, or through the, through the judges. And here Samuel is telling them that this is what God's like. He's reminding them, hey, don't forget the God who rescued you out of Egypt can be trusted. He's faithful. He loves you. You can trust him with your very lives. That's the first point in Samuel's short sermon here. The second point in Samuel's sermon is, uh, here's what you've done, Israel, what Israel has done. Look at verse 19. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. You see, the emphasis in the first point is, this is what God has done. You can see this in the original language. The emphasis is on, I have rescued you. I have been the one to redeem you. I am the one who has saved you time and time again. But now the emphasis in this point switches, but you, Israel. In light of all of God's faithfulness, Israel was here rejecting the Lord rejecting the Lord who saves them out of their calamities and distresses. So God's chosen people is saying, set a king over us. It's tantamount to saying, God, we don't want you. We know you've been faithful, but we don't want you. And it isn't the fact that the people wanted a king that was the problem. The problem was that they did not want God as their king. They wanted a king because they did not want to be associated with Yahweh. They wanted to be like the other nations. They no longer wanted to be the Lord's people. Can you imagine being there? The last time you were there, we've seen God save you from the hands of the Philistines because you were led to repent and turn away from false gods. A renewed repentance But sometime between that visit and this visit, something has went off track. And Samuel says, God has been faithful, but you, you have been unfaithful. And Samuel's third point then begins with, now, therefore. He says, now, therefore, verse 19, 
present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now let's just put a pause in looking at the text for a minute. Pretend you've never read this story. But the, the prophet of the Lord has gathered you together, and he said, listen, listen, uh, the Lord has been faithful, but you, you chosen people of God, have been unfaithful. Therefore, what do you think is going to come next? Put yourself in the shoes of Israelites here. What do you think, what do you think that they thought, what's next? What's going to happen You've just been reminded of God's faithfulness and his power, and you've been told that even though God has been faithful to you, you have rejected him. And then the prophet says, present yourselves. At this point, it feels as if judgment is about to fall. If you've placed yourself in the story, then you remember that there's also been other occasions where the prophet has gathered people together like this, by their clans and by their thousands. Joshua chapter 7, I can put it on the screen for you. Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan who sins in the camp. And this is what it says. This is what uh, the Lord talking to Joshua here. He says, in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by the clans. The clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And that next verse, and he who is taken from the devoted things shall be burned with fire, right? And so you see that the idea here is that the people of Israel are here thinking that they're going to be led to repentance again, only this time it would not be from turning away from false gods. It will be because they will be punished for what they've asked for. Remember, up until this point, the, the people of Israel, all they've done is request a king. They haven't been told that God's given the okay for it. They haven't been told that Samuel is uh, supposed to make them a king. Only Samuel is told that at this point. And so the people there are remembering the story of Achan, remembering the judgment that fell, and they're remembering that God has been faithful, followed by a proclamation of their guilt, which should then necessarily lead them to anticipate a coming judgment because they've not been faithful, not been faithful. You see, the reminder of God's faithfulness followed by a proclamation of your guilt should lead you not immediately to Jesus Christ, saying, thank you, Lord, but rather first stop should be, oh no, I'm in trouble. This God who has been faithful to me, I have been unfaithful to him. But what we see happen next brings a sigh of relief to God's chosen people. We see that a king is chosen by God. The story continues to sound like the Achan story, though, from Joshua. Look at verse 20. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Like the Achan story, the way in which a single person was chosen out of this large group uh, of people is by what the ESV and the NIV here calls, they were taken by Lot. By lot, like, like, like rolling a dice, if you will. And if you're reading out the King James Version of the CSB, you'll notice that the sentence just ends with, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. Right? This is an interpretive decision on the part of the translators based upon the context of the story and the relation to Joshua chapter 7. Like they, like they expected, like they were taken by lot. Anyway, the, the point is that the story is under the control of the sovereign control of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 says this. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. And so the point that the story is meant to, to weigh on us is that the Lord is in control of what's happening here. Not mere chance. Look at verse 21. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, 
and the clan of the Matrides was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. At this point in the story, you and I, the readers who, who have read up until this point, the entire story, can breathe a sigh of relief. Because this is the first time in the story we see that judgment is not falling. We've been introduced to Saul already, the son of Kish. We, we met him in chapter 9, followed him throughout the insignificant stories. We watched as, as Samuel uh, anointed him as king in private, giving him a kingdom. But why would Saul be selected here in what looks to be punishment from Yahweh? Apparently Saul was wondering the same thing, which is why at the end of verse 21, uh, it reads that when they sought him, they could not find him. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Joshua and the, the taking of uh, Achan by Lot, then, then you would be wondering, like, I don't understand this. Why, did, why was Saul hiding? Wasn't he anointed king? Well, that just goes to prove that what's actually happening here is the people thought that judgment was coming. They thought that the, well, we're not going to get grace, that we're only going to get judgment and punishment. And so Samuel, or, or Saul, does what you would do in that case. You would go and hide too. Wouldn't you? If the God of the universe have been faithful to you, and you've been unfaithful to him, and you thought punishment was coming, wouldn't you run? Wouldn't you hide? That's what we find Saul here doing. Verse 22, the people are left wondering, now what? They inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders Upward. Remember, we've been clued into chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, when we first introduced to Saul, that he was a handsome young man. Moreover, he was tall, taller than all the other people by his shoulder's length. But the people didn't see him. They didn't know. In, in general, like he, he was known amongst his family, amongst the Benjamite clan, but the people of Israel had not seen him. And so this is important because he then stands among the people. Though the man who's been chosen well, seemingly at random by Lot, uh, by casting of the dice, he, he is chosen. Now he comes out and he stands among the people. And he's taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. Remember, the kind of king that Israel was looking for, the kind of king that they were guilty of asking for would be one that would make Israel like all the other nations. This king would go out and fight all of their battles for them. In other words, they did not want someone unimpressive. They wouldn't want you and I. They didn't want someone unimpressive. They wanted someone who would make an impression on other ones, someone who would strike fear into the hearts of their enemies just by looking at him. In other words, they did not want someone who looked like a lowly shepherd. They wanted a man's man. And this tall, handsome, strapping young man was just the person they were looking for. And now comes the moment everyone's been waiting for. Look at verse 24. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Now if you've been paying attention, I want you to notice something. Do you remember back in chapter 8 when Samuel was telling the people uh, about what this king would be like, that he would take, take, take? Do you also remember what Samuel said in verse uh, 18? Put it on the screen for you. Uh, he said this, in, in that day you will cry out because of your king. Look at those next words. Whom you have chosen. This is interesting. In the, as Samuel was telling uh, the, the, the elders and the people of Israel that like, when you choose this king 
uh, nothing but judgment and, 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 and slavery will come upon you. And when you cry out because of that king whom you've chosen, the Lord will not answer you. But then look back at the text before us today. It says, it says that the, this is who the Lord has chosen. Samuel introduces Saul to the people of Israel by like, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? This is the vocabulary of choosing that he uses to introduce Saul to the people. In other words, couldn't Samuel have said, do you see the, him whom you have chosen? He could have, but he doesn't. The surprise is that Samuel informed the people for the first time that the Lord has chosen the man before them. They have not chosen him. In this language of God choosing people in the scripture, uh, in our day we feel quite weird about it, right? You say that God has chosen people and people lose their minds. Uh, but all throughout the scriptures we see God choosing people, choosing individuals even. He chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. He chose Israel by which the seed would come. He chose Aaron to uh, take over after Moses. And he chooses Saul here. He will eventually choose David and he will eventually choose Jerusalem. We see God has sovereign choice over the universe. He can choose who he wants. And so the puzzle for us is how God's choice of a leader could be brought together with the people's choice for a king. The people had chosen to reject the Lord and have a king for themselves, and the man before them was the obvious choice for such a king. However perplexing this may be, the Lord's choice became the people's choice as they shouted, long live the king. Finally, they have gotten their king. Who else would be better suited than this tall, handsome-looking man? Finally, we will be like the nations, they said. Finally, Saul will go out and fight our battles for us. And at this point, we, the readers, should be wondering, knowing that God has said, the king whom you have chosen will take, take, take. And here he's introduced as the king whom God has chosen. We, the readers, should be left wondering, how's this going to work out? Didn't Samuel say this wouldn't be a good thing? That rejecting the Lord as their king would land them back in slavery? Will Israel now no longer be the Lord's people? Will he abandon them? And we know from reading chapter 9, verse 16, that we, we see that the Lord's purpose for Saul was that Israel would continue to be God's people in spite of the fact that they continued to reject him. Despite the fact they were attempting to reject him as their king. And so finally we come to the last point, the kingdom of God. The end of this chapter, so far the events have been perplexing. People demand uh, for a king. It's a rejection of God as their king, yet God told Samuel to make them a king. God then brings Saul to Samuel to be anointed secretly as prince over the chosen people. Then in chapter 10, verse 16, the narrator clues us in. This is important. We didn't mention this last week. But look at verse 16 really quick. Saul's uncle is questioning him. He's returned, uh, says, where, are, like, where have you been? He says, I was out trying to find the donkeys. Uh, he's, I ran into Samuel, and he says, tell me everything that he said. And in verse 16, it says this, And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, notice this is no longer in quotes in your scripture. About the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. In other words, the narrator of the story, the one writing the story down, wants you, the reader, to understand there's something larger at play here. There was no mention of a kingdom up until this point, but rather just the anointing of Saul as a prince. But now we, we begin to see something significant happens. 
Here at Mizpah, Samuel told the people how wicked their demand for a king was. He reminded them of how faithful the Lord has been. And then he singles out a single man as if for judgment and punishment. Saul is picked, designated as Lord's choice, and acclaimed by the people as their king. And then look what happens in verse 25. Might be the most important verse of this passage. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. The text is interesting here. You might be asking yourself, is he merely repeating what he told them, what this ideal of a king would look like, that a king would take, 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 like he did in chapter 8? Uh, let's put it back on the screen. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 9, he says, Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over This is the Lord talking to Samuel. And then the Lord says, Show them what the ways of the king will look like who will reign over them. And then, of course, we get, Samuel says, he's just going to take, take, take. So is that what Samuel's writing down here? It's not. It's not what's happening. In fact, the phrase, this, this ways of the king might better be translated the justice of the king. And then he shows them in chapter 8 what that justice of a king would look like. But here in, in chapter 10, verse 25, that phrase could be, Sam, could be translated, then Samuel told the people the justice of the kingdom. This is an important distinction. At the end of chapter 7, we find Samuel judging Israel. And the justice that he brought was deliverance from their enemies, peace with their neighbors, and social order throughout the nation. And when the elders of Israel first asked for a king, they said, we want a, a, a king to judge us like you, Samuel. We want a king who will judge us like you. Samuel, you've been faithful to the Lord. We want you to put not another prophet, not another judge over us. We want a king to go over us. And God told Samuel that the justice of the king who would reign over them would be horrible. He said, it's just going to take, take, take. But now here at Mizpah, Saul has been acclaimed as their king. And Samuel told the people the justice of the kingdom. In other words, this, the ways of the kingdom. What will the ways of the kingdom look like? Not the justice of the king, not the ways of the king, but the ways of the kingdom. It's an important distinction. What is the author of this story trying to tell us? What does he mean by the ways of the kingdom? Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. I want you to see this with me. I don't, there's too much to put on the screen, but... Flip back here. Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 17. This is what I think Samuel wrote before the people on that day in a book and put it before the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 14 says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and they say, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And you shall acquire, not acquire, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I believe this is what Samuel wrote in the book in in front of the, the children of Israel that day. And you see, the ways of the kingdom had been given by Moses in the very early days of this nation. It was in summary that a king of Israel was not to be like the other nations. You see that, right? He was not to take Take, take. He was only uh, to reign under the lordship of the Lord, keeping and doing all the words of his law. It's like this. The people thought that they were getting what they wanted. They said, we want a king so we can be like the other nations, that, that he would judge us, that he will go out and fight our battles for us. We want that kind of king. But what did they get? Here we find that God is still at work among his people. You see, they want to abandon the kingship of God by getting their own king for themselves so that they can be like the nations. But now they have a king. Moreover, they had a king and they had written rules, written terms, if you will, by which God's kingdom must be preserved. You see, they had a king, but they were not like the other nations. Now watch how this plays out. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship And he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Watch this. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. That's important. They've just been given a king. They've just been given a king, and who tells them to go home? Samuel. Hasn't a king just been crowned? And yet Samuel is the one sending the people away to their homes. And so here we see that according to God's design, according to the rules of the kingdom, we see that that the king would not become ultimate in God's kingdom. Not this human king, anyway. We see who is really in charge, the prophet, or in other words, the one who is speaking on behalf of God. Now let me close with this. We'll deal with the end of the story uh, next time, but let me bring us back to where we started. What hope do you have that God's kingdom will advance in our culture? What hope do you have that God's kingdom will advance in our culture? 1 Samuel chapter 10 shows us that even though the people, listen, even though God's people were trying to thwart God's kingdom, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. In fact, in establishing a king, they progressed the story of Yahweh forward. You see, they're reminded about the faithfulness of God. And then we see God is the one who chooses a king. And then we see that this king must still abide by the kingdom of God and not his own kingdom. You see, it's this kingdom of God that all of the kings must be measured against. Is it a kind of king who takes only, never gives? Is it a kind of king who reigns as if they alone have the source of authority? Or is God their source of authority? Do they keep and obey and do all of God's law? This is the measuring standard by which uh, the people of God's people have of measuring whether or not their ruler is a good or bad ruler. Friends, do, do you? Do you do these things? Because we live in a day and age which we no longer are, are demanding, like God's chosen people of Israel, uh, demanding a king. As a matter of fact, we're Americans, and we demanded not to have a king. Instead, we'd rather have a tyrant for four years at a time. And then we say, that's fine, we'll, we'll get rid of him. But what happens when, when that becomes our mode of figuring out who rules over us? The, the writers of the Constitution had one, one goal, one goal. Do you know what that goal was? It was to put the power of government into whose hands? 
the people. It says, we the people. Right? Is the, the goal of, of the, the writers, the, the founders of the, uh, this country, their goal was to put the power into the people's hands. Let me ask you this. Does the power belong in your hands? You see the problem. But today, that is how we do it. We, we define uh, all of life as, uh, does everything satisfy me? And so, friends, since you have put yourself in the place of king of your life, let me ask you, are you abiding by God's kingdom rules? Have you kept and done and obeyed all of God's law? I think we can all say no. But then where does that leave us? Do you order and rule your own life as if you are the only source of authority? Brothers and sisters, what about Jesus? How did he do in living up to God's kingdom? Did he do it? How did he do it reigning under the Father, Yahweh? You see, our hope that God's kingdom will continue to advance in our day and age is not by who's in charge. Our hope that God's kingdom will continue to advance in our culture is not based upon how well we are doing. Our only hope in God's advancing kingdom is because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. You see, it was Christ's work on the cross that then opens the door for us to enter into this kind of kingdom. You see, make no mistake, friends, Jesus Christ is currently reigning as king right now. You say, well, I don't see it. It's, it's okay. You see, oftentimes we think of kingdom in a sense of geographical uh, 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 power, right? We think of like the Queen of England, even though like has no power, uh, but the, of, of a locale, of a location. And yet that's not the way Jesus' kingdom is going to be ruled or is being ruled. But rather, Jesus' kingdom exists based upon the authority of which he has. You see, Jesus came and he obeyed these commands that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moreover, the work of Christ is carried out by his church. You see, you and I are invited into this kingdom to live as if Christ truly does rule the world. As if he truly does have the entire cosmos in his hands. And so my question for you is, how are you doing in that? Do you live as if Christ is truly Lord of your life? Or do you just think Jesus is just another add-on? That you're still the center of your world? Friends, that is the fundamental problem that becomes Saul. It's the fundamental problem that we see in David. It's the fundamental problem we see in Solomon and all the other kings in the Old Testament is that they eventually put themselves as ruler and king and not the Lord. As a matter of fact, most of your Old Testament scripture is to present to you time and time again, be like this person or don't be like this person. What that means is that, that there are things in life which are, are uh, objectively right and wrong. We teach our children this all the time, and yet when we talk to other adults, we pretend as if there is no uh, objection uh, or objective truth of right and wrong, and yet there is. And it's based on God's word. It's based on God's word. Friends, our only hope that God's work will continue to advance in our day is not by our strength and not by our own power, not by our own might, but solely based upon what he has done. And based upon the fact that Jesus says, I have all authority, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. 
friends, that's our mission. Like if you're living your life without that, like maybe like you're like, yeah, I've heard that before and it sounds good when it comes up, but, but are you living your life like that? Christians, I'm talking to you. Are you living your life as if Jesus really has all authority? Because if that's true, if he really is king, if he really is Lord, if he really has all authority in heaven and in earth, and he loves us. Don't forget that. This is not a king who takes. This is a king who loves us, continues to give to us. If God would not spare his only son, but would give him up for us all, how much more will he, uh, how much will he not give us all things? He will. So much of Christianity, I'm, I'm planning a sermon series. I'm going to end with this. Um, that's the whole sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm planning a sermon series later this year called The Lordship of Christ because there's a problem in the church that merely relies on easy believism. What I mean by that is we, we, we teach people and we say, come to Jesus, and that's it. Merely come to Jesus, repent of your sins, and then figure it out on your own. And then we're left in a pickle when people have said, well, I, I've prayed a prayer, I claim Jesus, and then they live like the world the rest of the, the days of their lives. Like you come to some funerals, I've done some funerals, and we're like, yeah, 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 he loved the Lord. He was a Christian. He, he was baptized in a church, and yet he never obeyed the Lord's commands. And so the question is, was he a Christian? Was the Lord, was Jesus Lord of their life? That's where all this goes, like, like the, the idea of kingdom in the scripture, this idea that Jesus is bringing a kingdom is so fundamental to the, to, from the beginning to the end of the story. And we would be truncated in our understanding of it if we just merely said, Jesus merely comes to save sinners. He does do that. So much more, though. So much more. There's so much life. If you knew the kind of life that comes from walking with Jesus, if you knew the kind of joy that comes from walking with Jesus, friends, you would do it. You would do it. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning as people who don't have this all together. We come as people who, like the Israelites, are oftentimes uh, kicking you off the throne and putting ourselves in the throne. But Father, Lord, we want you to be Lord of our lives. We want your kingdom to advance even in our day and age. With the critics and uh, the non-believers say it's not possible and that you're just make-believe. Father, we know that you are real. And we know that you are at work in your world, in your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that we would uh, evaluate our lives, that we would submit ourselves in repentance again to you. And we would bring all of life under the lordship of Christ. We need your help with this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brother Philip.